The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. My ears have been so astonished, my mind so disturbed, and my heart frightened to hear of the horrible and abominable murder of your late husband and my slaughtered cousin that I have scarcely the spirit to write. I express my sympathy in your sorrow for his loss, so to tell you plainly, that I cannot conceal that I grieve more for you than for him. Oh, madam, I should ill fulfill the office of a faithful cousin or an affectionate friend if I did not urge you to preserve your honor. I cannot but tell you what the world is thinking. Men say that instead of seizing the murderers, you are looking through your fingers while they escape, and that you will not seek revenge on those who have done you so much. I beg you to believe that I would not harbor such thoughts. I counsel, I beg you deeply, to consider of the matter. If this be the nearest friend you have, to lay hands upon the man who has been guilty of the crime, to let no interest, no persuasion, keep you from proving to everyone that you are a noble princess and a loyal wife. Elizabeth I to Mary, Queen of Scots. From Mary, Queen of Scots, and the murder of Lord Darnley, by Alison Weir. Welcome, Murder Bookies, to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. This is episode 73, second cast, Fell in Love and Lost Her Head, on the death of Amy Robsart and Elizabethan Mystery by Sarah Beth Watkins. I am Jill, your host, and I bring you the best true crime books, releasing an episode every two weeks. Please read along with me and share your thoughts with me on X, aka Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I really love hearing from you. I have noticed San Diego and Los Angeles, California, and Chicota, Oklahoma, listening like mad. And overseas, Sunderland, UK, just incredible. Keep up the good work. And a few five-star reviews would really be nice. In episode 72, I left you deep in the 500-year-old mystery of Lady Dudley, Amy Robsart's death. If you're just tuning in, I'd start with episode 71, and then listen to 72, and then tune in to 73. But hey, if you want to race to the end, just go for it. (laughs) I get that. We know that at the height of Elizabeth I's infatuation with Lord Robert Dudley, his wife of 10 years died, was found with a broken neck at the bottom of the stairs. The court and ambassadorial gossip in England and across Europe was outrageously scandalous and suggested that the Queen of England and her master of horse had conspired to get rid of Amy so Elizabeth and Robert Dudley could marry. Not only were tongues wagging in the royal courts all over Europe, but the common people of England were also talking, and it's arguably worse. Commoner John White testified that, quote, a drunken Burley said to him that Lord Robert Dudley did swivel the queen, end quote. Oh, so they're having sex. The Virgin Queen, right? 
A woman known as Mother Dow was arrested for alleging that the Queen was pregnant with Dudley's child, and a vicar was in trouble for repeating a rumor that a man had been taken to the tower for saying the Queen was with child. Lewd innuendos, there were serious consequences for the salacious chatter. Now, under these suspicious circumstances, the inquest jury determined that Amy's death was misfortune, a terrible accident. But questions remain. Gossip continued for a while. Who would benefit from Amy's death? Who had motive and opportunity to kill Amy Robsart? The list is not short. We've gone through the months preceding Amy's death and the day of her death itself. We delved into the 1560 autopsy report, and I was impressed that there was one. I took you through the evidence assessing the accident, delving into every known facet of the jury's conclusion that Amy simply fell injuring her head and dying with a broken neck. The possibility of breast cancer, complicated by brittle bones, may have played a role. It can't really be ruled out. But we also explored the facts that could indicate suicide and perhaps a cry for attention, something between misfortune and a desperate call for help. I do not see quite enough evidence to think that these are valid, however. And now we are investigating the possibility of murder. Evidence and some deductive reasoning lead me to eliminate the husband, Robert Dudley, as the killer, and his longtime friend, Richard Verney, as his accomplice. Robert was at Windsor Castle with the Queen, with hundreds of eyes upon him, an airtight alibi. And no one could place Richard Verney in Oxfordshire, let alone at Cumnor Place, carrying out Amy's assassination. There's just no evidence to support this. The next suspect, Elizabeth Tudor, Queen of England. I believe the Queen was in love with Robert Dudley and was a very jealous woman who banished his wife from court and commanded her favorite not to do anything with his wife. The Queen has a long, well-documented history of loathing those around her from having personal relationships. So, for example, later, two of her gray cousins marry for love without her permission and were promptly imprisoned in the Tower of London, and in one case, dying there. And Elizabeth had very little family to begin with. Others of the court who followed their hearts and married faced similar fates. At the time, Thomas Howard, the Duke of Norfolk, also told an ambassador that Elizabeth would be married within six months, but hedged on naming the groom. Of her own marriage, Elizabeth had cleverly used matrimony to control the other nations of Europe through her foreign policy. So if France was threatening her, Elizabeth threatened to marry Spain. If the Holy Roman Empire grew belligerent, Elizabeth considered marrying France. So she was playing one against the other. And she played this long game in foreign policy, keeping various European princes interested, but never agreeing to anything. And she would do this for the next 20 years which we know, but they did not know back then. The day of her death, Amy vehemently insisted her servants and ladies go to the fair. Now, this is unprecedented for her. Was she preparing for a visit from the queen, the new taffeta gown she had rushed ordered, ready for a regal visit? I would want a new gown if I were facing my queen and my rival. Of course, the queen would never go to Cumnor Place herself, and we know she's at Windsor. but. Could she have sent an assassin to eliminate the wife that prevented her marriage to Robert? 
Okay, so how would this benefit Elizabeth? Would she appreciate the scandal that we're already immersed in? No, I doubt she would. If she was looking for a way to marry her favorite, wouldn't she choose a woman's weapon? Poison. Less obvious, less messy, very quiet. And Amy was supposedly fatally ill. A 16th century autopsy might overlook poison and support her death from natural causes. But wait, why wouldn't Elizabeth just wait for a natural death to occur? It is so much easier. Elizabeth is not an impatient, frivolous young woman. She'd survived her way to the throne, a destiny that was not given. She would probably wait it out for Amy's natural death. And the truth is, she wasn't that hot to marry anyone, including Lord Robert Dudley. And when he was free, Elizabeth chooses not to marry Robert. In fact, I believe that Robert Dudley, a widower under these circumstances, this utterly prevented any marriage to the Queen from ever happening. By 1560, Elizabeth was being drained by all the marriage intrigue and dire warnings. Historian Susan Duran writes, quote, that the Queen was reported as not looking so hardy and well as she did by a great deal, and surely the matter of my Lord Robert doth perplex her, end quote. So she is stressed. Did this push the queen to risk it all to marry her favorite? Well, Elizabeth thrived on his attention, and she encouraged him to believe that they had a future together, and she berated her beloved companion, Cat Ashley, for suggesting she give up her Robert. A realist, pragmatic Elizabeth was also beginning to recognize the scope of the gossip by ambassadors and royal courts across Europe and within her own realm. Given she supposedly told Robert years before that she would never marry, given all of her childhood horrors regarding matrimony and its consequences, I do not believe Elizabeth gained anything from orchestrating Amy's murder, especially if it were true that Amy was suffering from breast cancer. Time would resolve this all on its own. Kind of fun fact. Called a romantic fact. In October 1562, so this is like two years after Amy's death, Elizabeth I contracted smallpox and became deathly ill, throwing her council into a panic, fearing civil war over the succession. If Elizabeth died, who was going to rule? Elizabeth ordered her council to make Robert Dudley protector of the kingdom, and she made it clear that, quote, as God is her witness, nothing improper had ever passed between them, end quote. Huh, a lot there. So until a successor was determined by the council, Dudley would rule her kingdom. I think she makes clear her thinking and her feelings that she trusts him above all others. She trusts him with the welfare of her realm. And I think it's an incredible insight into Dudley's role in her life. And I also believe her when she says they never did anything untoward. Well, Elizabeth survived the smallpox and then continues to reign for another 42 years. So I do not believe Elizabeth Tudor had anything to do with Amy Robstart's death. Next suspect. Could an enemy of Robert Dudley's have devised a secret visit to Amy, had her arranged to be alone, and killed her? Possibly. Recall that Dudley initially believed that Amy might have been killed by villainy, his word, and he insisted on the thorough inquest. Did he suspect an enemy might have done her in to get to him? 
Well, one of these to consider is Thomas Howard, the fourth Duke of Norfolk. Ambassador Quadra describes, quote, he was the chief of Lord Robert's enemies, who are all the principal people in the kingdom, and that he said that if Lord Robert did not abandon his present pretension and presumptions, he would not die in his bed, as the Duke and the rest of them cannot put up with his being king, end quote. So the Duke of Norfolk hates this guy. And if you remember, he was the one implicated in plotting with John Appleyard, Amy's half-brother, to turn him against Robert Dudley in exchange for him becoming a wealthy man. On telling this story of nobles approaching him, Appleyard found himself in prison, and that was a quick turnaround. But wait, who is this Duke of Norfolk? Who is this guy? Well, he's politically well-connected. No shocker there. Thomas Howard is Elizabeth I's cousin. Her maternal grandmother was Elizabeth Howard Boleyn, and Elizabeth Boleyn's brother is Thomas Howard's grandfather, the infamous third Duke of Norfolk, who oversaw his niece, Queen Anne Boleyn's trial and execution. This third Duke of Norfolk was in the Tower of London when Henry VIII died, and he narrowly avoided his execution. Now, our Thomas Howard's father was Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, who was beheaded on January 19, 1547, on charges of treason. You have to love Tudor history. I mean, everybody gets executed on charges of treason. I mean, it's just a constant thing. You can't make this up. So our suspect, Thomas Howard and Robert Dudley, did get along in the beginning. They both served at the Queen's coronation, Norfolk as the Earl Marshal and Dudley as Master of Horse. Together, they were made Knights of the Garter the very day Amy died. Like there weren't enough rumors going around, there were those who claimed that Norfolk was jealous of Dudley's influence with the Queen. Leaving court, Norfolk returned to his estates, but returned in late 1559, and was utterly horrified at the deepening intimacy between the Queen and Lord Robert. His friends, Secretary of State William Cecil and the Earl of Sussex, were equally dismayed at the power Dudley was accumulating and what could happen if he became king. And he was already, in their opinions, interfering in matters where he should not. For example, at Robert's behest, Queen Elizabeth appointed his brother-in-law, John Appleyard, to the position of High Sheriff of Norfolk, instead of the man the Duke of Norfolk wanted in the position, which had to have rubbed him the wrong way. And to antagonize further, at the pinnacle of peerage in the country, Norfolk paid the highest amount of parliamentary taxes to the crown, while Dudley played nothing at all. He had a writ of discharge given to him by the queen. So all of this greatly upsets Norfolk, so much so he refused to pay his dues, his disgust spilling over, and people do begin to notice. He loathed Robert Dudley. Was this his motivation to ruin Dudley? Now, 13 months before Amy's death, it was reported, quote, a plot was made to murder Lord Robert and is now common talk and threat. The plot was headed by the Duke of Norfolk, the Earl of Sussex, and all the principal adherents of the scheme for marrying the queen to the Archduke, end quote. So they want to murder Robert, huh? Well, to be fair, there is no evidence that Norfolk was involved in this plot or if it actually existed at all. 
but there was yammering all about it, giving insight into the depths of Norfolk's enmity and how often this rumor made the rounds. As I ask in every case, would Thomas Howard risk it all orchestrating the murder of A.B. Dudley to prevent Robert from ever marrying the Queen and gaining more power, influence, and wealth as King Consort? Well, if he did, it worked marvelously because Robert never marries Elizabeth. And this does sound like a strong motive, and Norfolk certainly had the resources to pull it off. So where is Norfolk in 1560? While having Elizabeth's trust, he was the commander of the English army in Scotland until July. He and Cecil were working towards a peace treaty with Scotland, which bonded the two men in this godforsaken task, which is rumored to have been thrust upon them due to the influence of Robert Dudley. Well, of course, you blame the guy you hate for a difficult, unpleasant task handed to you by your queen, because you really can't get angry at her, right? So it's all Robert's fault. Five years later, with the marriage of Archduke Charles still under discussion, told you she plays the long game here, Dudley clearly remained Elizabeth's favorite. When Norfolk returned to court in 1566, the two men were at war with each other again, although by now the rumors of the Queen marrying Dudley had died down significantly. In the fall of 1566, when Elizabeth was pressed yet again by Parliament to name a successor, she raged at Norfolk, calling him a traitor. Getting over her anger, she once again suggested that she would marry, and she hinted that it would be Archduke Charles. What Norfolk fails to appreciate is that he has a very limited shelf life. Two years earlier, so 1564, Elizabeth had suggested him as the preeminent peer in the kingdom, as the husband to then-widowed, troublesome Catholic cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, who had long had designs on Elizabeth's throne. Now, nothing came of this. However, fast forward four years, 1568, the Scottish ambassador approaches Norfolk, again suggesting that this marriage might be a good idea, and let's talk. And Norfolk agrees. If Elizabeth died without an heir, her likely successor would be Mary Queen of Scots. So marrying her would make Norfolk King of England and found the House of Power, kind of like today's House of Windsor. Unfortunately, Norfolk forgot to keep Elizabeth in the loop. The marriage negotiations were uncovered, and Norfolk was arrested in 1569 and sent to the Tower for treason. But Thomas is, after all, her cousin, so he is released a year later. And I will have more on this as we explore potential killers, because you just won't even believe it. My conclusion at this point, though, is that Norfolk is just not bright enough to pull this off. He's just not. We'll get back to him. Another who detested Dudley and was dead set against him marrying the Queen was Thomas Radcliffe, the third Earl of Sussex, who was a good friend of Norfolk and William Cecil. Well-versed in military strategy, Sussex served as Elizabeth's Lord Lieutenant in Ireland in 1560, but was often at court, and he is also related to the Queen through Anne Boleyn's mother, Elizabeth Howard. Sussex felt that Dudley was already way above his station without adding a crown to it and simply detested the man. 
So it is not hard to believe that Norfolk and Sussex would plot against Dudley. And again, I refer you back to the John Appleyard story, which seems to have been largely dismissed by everybody. But Sussex is absolutely loyal to the Queen, while appalled that she might marry Dudley. I mean, this just could not be. Charles of Austria was the most appropriate suitor, according to him. But would he kill Amy to knock Robert Dudley out of the running? Would he go that far? Well, after Amy's death, Sussex writes to Cecil that it is imperative that the queen marry in a timely fashion and, quote, following her own affections might be the only way to gain a blessed prince for the realm. So let her love where she will choose, and he will also love and honor and serve, end quote. Wow. All right. She needs to follow her own affections, so let her love where she'll choose. He's talking about Robert Dudley, and the queen should follow her heart and marry Robert Dudley. Why? Why this complete 180-degree turn? I mean, this is just bizarre. Was this a guilt reaction by Sussex following a terrible deed in killing this innocent woman? Was he full of regret and trying to rectify the situation? Well. Dudley and Sussex would continue to butt heads and argue vehemently, even in front of the Queen, for years. But when Dudley's secret marriage came to light in 1578, yes, after all of this, he's going to marry another woman, Latisse Nolis. It was Sussex who prevented the Queen from sending Robert to the Tower. He acts on Robert's behalf, a man he hates. I think that this is a man who tried to do the right thing, even keeping a man he hates out of prison for an illicit marriage. You can't throw this guy who's been so influential in the tower for simply getting married. So I can rule Sussex out as a suspect. He did not kill Amy. Now I come to William Cecil, the Queen's chief advisor and secretary of state, who also served the Lord Protector, Edward Seymour, during the reign of Edward VI, Elizabeth's brother. Cecil never took part in Mary I's court and remained Elizabeth's strongest supporter. Of Cecil, the Spanish ambassador de Feria wrote, quote, Cecil will be secretary to Madame Elizabeth. He is said to be an able and virtuous man, but a heretic, end quote. So he has a good reputation. In episode 71, we've already touched on Cecil's dislike of Robert Dudley, and how he may have viewed him as competition, and should the queen marry him, Cecil's services would no longer be necessary, his position, his power, undermined. Now, Cecil's priority was seeing Elizabeth married with an heir, and thus restoring the natural masculine monarchy. He also fervently prayed that it would not be Dudley who would ruin the country, and he hinted, quote, that Lord Robert would be far better in paradise than in England, end quote. Well, that sure sounds like Cecil is suggesting that someone killed Dudley. So this enmity runs deep. Does it reveal a man capable of murder, however? The stereotypical ruthless politician in a brutal era? Well, it could be. Recall Robert Dudley's mistake-laden letter to Cecil after he visited Robert in exile in Kew House, the royal residence. Did Cecil lull Dudley into believing he was being helpful? Hence, like the odd tone of the communication by Robert, because Cecil knew he, Cecil, was the one who'd orchestrated Amy's demise. 
Because, I mean, after all, if he was helping Robert, he couldn't have been involved in the plot himself, right? Had Cecil realized he didn't need to kill Robert Dudley, he only needed to make Robert completely unsuitable as a husband for the Queen of England. Had he specifically picked a date when Robert Dudley was being made Knight of the Garter to have Amy killed so Robert would have an airtight alibi? Cecil is well aware of the Queen's affection and her reliance on Dudley, so would he truly want to hurt his beloved Queen? I doubt it. And like it or not, Dudley is part of her inner circle. All right, it is speculation, but there's a lot of facts here that do seem to connect. I don't think it's that far-fetched. As secretary, Cecil wielded a great amount of power and influence. Who is leading the council's examination of Amy's half-brother, John Appleyard, over that noble's plot against Dudley? Cecil. Now recall the earlier dispatch by Ambassador Quadra. He wrote that Cecil was frantically worried over Elizabeth's infatuation and his personal loss of power at Dudley's hands. And as a result, Cecil is considering retiring before he ends up locked in the Tower of London himself. Oh, and by the way, did Quadra know Elizabeth and Dudley were considering killing Amy Dudley? Did a clever, manipulative Cecil save his queen and country by having Amy Dudley killed, forever preventing Robert from marrying Elizabeth, saving his job and possibly his own life too? Hmm. Do we believe that Cecil was so despairing? that he confided his frustrations, venting to Ambassador Quadra. Unlikely. Cecil is an astute, intelligent man, calculating, who played the long game. Cecil only told Quadra what he knew the ambassador would repeat. It was Cecil who told Quadra that Amy was recovering and in good health. Was he manipulating the ambassador so Amy's death would be a greater shock when it occurred? contaminating the environment of this potential royal marriage? Did Cecil magnify opposition to Robert Dudley? If Cecil did plot Amy's death, a lot of problems would vanish for William Cecil. Now, Sarah Beth Watkins includes this story as an illustration, and I believe it is highly relevant. In 1567, so this is seven years after Amy's death, the Earl of Oxford killed an undercooked named Thomas Bricknell in the gardens of Cecil's house. Oxford was fencing when the death occurred, and the jury investigation found that Bricknell committed suicide by falling on Oxford's rapier, killing him instantly. Now, that is an interesting conclusion, given that Oxford had argued self-defense. And there's more. Interestingly, Oxford would go on to marry Cecil's daughter. And later, Cecil admitted, quote, I did my best to have the jury find the death of the poor man whom he killed in my house to be found, say defendo, end quote, say defendo, so that Oxford had acted in self-defense. So he have Cecil using his power and influence to manipulate a jury in the direction he wanted. So the outcome was in his, Oxford's, and his daughter's favor. Noted. So there's no doubt in my mind Cecil is a politician. He is also a survivor of plots, intrigues, during intense religious conflict with dynastic implications. Cecil's concerns stem not so much from hatred of Dudley, but 
fear for his country. If a weakened Elizabeth were overthrown, who would succeed? Likely Catholic cousin Mary, Queen of Scots, and the Protestants would be marked for death, causing a religious civil war, a disaster for England. Cecil would later strongly urge Elizabeth to execute Mary, Queen of Scots once she was being held in English custody. I'll get to this in a minute. When Elizabeth signed the death warrant and then vacillated again, Cecil held a secret meeting of the Privy Council and ensured the death warrant was carried out. He believed he was doing the right thing for his country. Elizabeth's reaction was sheer horror that a fellow anointed queen had been executed and this weighed on her conscience for the rest of her life. Cecil lost influence for quite a while here, though he will return. So Cecil is a player keeping secrets and even maneuvering an execution of a woman to forward his agenda. From Watkins book, quote, Cecil deals with threats to the realm in the best way he saw fit by eliminating them. Cecil did not want Dudley marrying the queen and saw the relationship as a threat. Where the death of Amy might have left Dudley free to remarry, the way in which it was committed and suspicious surroundings it meant Dudley was stained by the rumors abounding of how she died and who might have killed her, end quote. Now, what other support do we have? What kind of evidence do we have? Well, we have Cecil's notes from the period, which includes the pros and cons of a Dudley marriage. Quote, reason against the Earl of Leicester. Nothing is increased by marriage to him, either in riches, estimation, power. It will be thought that the slanderous speeches of the queen and the earl have been true. He shall study nothing but to enhance his own particular friend, to wealth, to office, to land, and to offend others. He is infamed by the death of his wife. He is far in debt. He is likely to prove unkind of jealous of the queen's majesty. End quote. Cecil's not wrong. And he points out specifically that Dudley is infamed by the death of his wife. So note, after Amy's death, Cecil shifted from being slightly out of favor to being the one man the queen could count on. And Dudley also needed him in that role. All talk of Cecil resigning ceased. So question, do we think that Cecil would willingly give up power power he was complaining that he was losing. I don't believe that for one second. Well, time waits for no man, and the matter of Amy Dudley's death would eventually fall from public discussion, and people moved on. But 24 years later, in 1584, Leicester's Commonwealth was published. A chief advisor to Elizabeth, her spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham, was the first to tell Robert Dudley that, quote, a printed libel against your lordship, the most malicious written thing that was ever penned since the beginning of the world, end quote, was being circulated. First in Paris, then Antwerp, and across Europe, it was thought that disgruntled Catholics created it to impugn Dudley. This vile attack on Dudley appears as a conversation between three men who list all of Dudley's faults and condemn him as his wife's murderer. When investigating Dudley ally, Sir Richard Verney, he is said to have first attempted to kill Amy by poison, and, quote, if that took not place, 
than by any other way to dispatch her, howsoever, end quote. So we're back to Richard Verney as Robert's accomplice. Now, the supposed proof of this refers to a Dr. Walter Bailey, who was to administer the poison, but he realized what the conspirators were up to and refused to cooperate. Dr. Bailey, who had in fact frequented court, had earlier lectured about poison at an event the Queen had attended, and he had been Dudley's doctor in the 1570s and had treated the Queen when she was suffering from a toothache. Following that, Bailey joined Her Majesty's group of royal physicians. Bailey never responded to the publication that had used his name. I suspect there might have been a slight truth in this document, had perhaps he treated Amy at some point. While the Queen did respond to Leicester's Commonwealth, twice, vehemently denouncing it as slanderous, shameful, a devilish book, that they were disobedient persons manifesting contempt for Her Majesty's regal and sovereign authority. This was a most infamous slander against the Earl of Leicester, and it was malicious and wicked. I think she ran out of negative adjectives to toss in there. (laughs) Her statement does go on a bit longer, but you get the gist. Robert's an innocent person. He's being viciously maligned. Later in the year, 1585, another pamphlet circulated titled Letter of Estate, which rehashed Dudley's neglect of his wife. It also provided a detailed but inaccurate description of Amy's death. Paraphrasing now, two servants in Cumnor Place are playing a game in another chamber and hear a noise of something falling. Later, they go to see what transpired, and to their horror, it is their lady, quote, a corpse without breath, end quote. Forsooth, the murderer had escaped, though it be likely her husband, Robert Dudley. Right, in 1586, there was a third publication titled Flores Calvinistici, indicating Amy was, quote, destroyed by a small nail thrust gradually into her head, end quote. This also reminds me of something else. One of the ambassadors had written weeks into this first investigation that Amy had fallen down the stairs and her hat, then called a hood, hadn't fallen off. It had not been displaced which you can certainly see might be suspicious if you are fatally falling to your death. But there is no other corroborating information anywhere that this actually happened, nor was anything like this mentioned in the autopsy report. There are a lot of hostile accounts about the Earl of Leicester going on even 25 years after Amy's death. But it is produced by people who have no connection to the events at Cumnor Palace in September 8, 1560, and who had an axe to grind. I believe most of this is just bunk, hearsay, made-up crap, rumors. So what ultimately happened to Robert Dudley? In 1575, he spends an enormous amount of money entertaining Elizabeth at his Kenilworth estate. Yeah, he finally has property granted to him by Elizabeth. Pulling out all the stops at this lavish, over-the-top, grand gesture festival. Robert is attempting to win the Queen's heart and get her to finally agree to marry him. No expenses spared. Fireworks, minstrel shows, feasting, festivities lasting 19 days. Scheduled for day 20 was a mask which would culminate in Dudley's proposal of marriage. But it was supposed to take place outdoors 
and it rained, postponing the event. And Elizabeth, perhaps sensing what was afoot, left Kenilworth. All right, hopes finally dashed after 15 years of rejection. In September 1578, Robert Dudley secretly married Elizabeth's very attractive younger version cousin, Latisse Nolis. She is the daughter of Elizabeth's maternal cousin, Catherine Carey, and her husband, Sir Francis Nolis. About a year later, the Queen discovered this secret union, and all hell breaks loose. Latisse is banished from court by an utterly aghast, furious, betrayed queen. Hurt, Dudley nearly went to the tower, save for the intervention of the Earl of Sussex, who I explained has no love for Dudley. Nevertheless, Elizabeth does forgive her favorite. As they grew older, they remained very close. And on his death in 1588, Elizabeth was utterly devastated, writing last letter on his final note to her, keeping it tucked safely away. I believe she truly loved him. She also made the correct royal decision not to marry him for the good of the country. Elizabeth would survive the invasion by Catholic Spain, the Spanish Armada, claiming victory in 1588, shortly before Robert Dudley's death. She would reign until 1603, the Virgin Queen, one mistress with no master. Stories about Amy Dudley's death appear in the 17th century, so these people have no connection whatsoever to the event. Anthony Woods wrote an interesting account in 1658, saying that thugs invaded Amy's chamber that night, which had been switched to give them access to her. They struck her in the head, broke her neck, and threw her down the stairs. Elias Ashmal wrote in 1719, largely repeating Woods' version, say for a spit being used to bash her in the head at the behest of Dudley and Anthony Forster. Sir Walter Scott fictionalizes the story in his novel, Kenilworth, as did Philippa Gregory and Alison Weir in The Virgin's Lover and The Marriage Game books, respectively. Sarah Beth Watkins concludes that Amy Robstart's death is a mystery that will probably never be solved unless a random historical document is unearthed somewhere and happens to have someone confessing. To our frustration, many details we just do not know. And the book ends with, quote, accident, suicide, or murder, what do you think? End quote. So, what do you think? Is there a guilty party here? Was it happenstance or mental illness? Well, here is my analysis of Amy Dudley's death, rooted in the facts that we do have and sprinkled with some theorizing. What sticks out to me the coincidence of Amy ushering her servants out of the house that particular day and then being found dead. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, and Amy had never done such a thing before. It was uncharacteristic. So I believe this is a hugely important clue. Something was interjected into the environment at Cumner Place, which altered her behavior. Combined with her purchase of the new velvet gown, the order rushed. I think she was anticipating a secret arrival of someone. Robert, Elizabeth, no, we know this. They're both at Windsor, surrounded by a ton of witnesses. Amy, who dies of natural causes, is the best scenario for Dudley. 
Hiring a thug to kill her does not make sense. Dudley immediately understood the maliciousness of his wife's death on his future aspirations, and I conclude it was not Dudley. Norfolk, unlikely. He himself was at Windsor with Robert, and while the men detest each other, he's just too dumb to pull off a complicated plot like this. But we're not done with the Duke. I already ruled out Sussex. He strives to do the right thing, and a malicious murder to achieve one's own agenda isn't in him. So it's not Norfolk, it's not Sussex. And then we come to William Cecil, the Queen's secretary. Cecil established a huge international spy network, later run by Sir Francis Walsingham, keeping tabs on all of Elizabeth's enemies and friends, Catholics and Protestants. Getting a letter surreptitiously to Amy without anyone knowing would not be that difficult for William Cecil. If told by a man of Cecil's rank to stay quiet about an upcoming visit, Amy would definitely have complied and not told her servant, Mrs. Pictou, and not even Robert. Amy would want to look her best if a man of Cecil's standing was coming to visit, knowing it would reflect well on Robert. Had hints been dropped of Elizabeth's pending marriage to Archduke Charles, or maybe Eric of Sweden? Maybe neutralizing Robert Dudley and the ugly rumors of him and the Queen was necessary for there to be a new king. Was Amy hopeful of being allowed to come to court to quell the ugly rumors of her husband and Elizabeth? Could she finally have a life with her husband? I think she was hopeful, anxious, and apprehensive. Had William Cecil shown up, struck Amy in the head twice, the blunt force trauma we read about in the autopsy report, and then staged the accident, throwing her down the stairs, cleaning up the blood later. No, of course Cecil himself did not, but he certainly had loyal, dedicated, trustworthy persons that he could send in these dangerous early days of Elizabeth's reign to carry this out. Well, who might this have been? I had to consider Francis Walsingham. Let's be clear. I do not know for sure. Walsingham had fled to France on Catholic Mary I's ascension, and there he made a gazillion contacts with fellow exiled Protestants and others across the continent. When Mary I died and Elizabeth became queen, Walsingham returned to England with the support of William Cecil. He is elected to the House of Commons in 1559, the year before Amy's death. Ten years later, he is one of Elizabeth and Cecil's most trusted, competent secretaries. He plays a prominent role in security and foreign policy until his death in 1590. Again, I do not know, but it is possible Walsingham forged his relationship with Cecil early on his return from France, being trusted by Cecil for important but sensitive projects. Was Cecil clever enough to figure out that killing Amy in an ambiguous manner would tarnish Robert Dudley forever, removing him as a contestant on the Tudor Bachelorette? Absolutely. Do we know that Cecil would use his power to influence a jury and impact a verdict? Absolutely. For a fact, we do. He admits this in the Oxford's self-defense suicide death that occurred on his estate. And that inquest cleared Oxford as it would clear Robert Dudley. Having Amy killed is a crazy risky choice, 
But Cecil was a man deeply worried that he was being pushed in retirement or worse. Other men had certainly gone this way. Cecil was determined to keep his power and influence as Elizabeth's Secretary of State. And the gamble worked brilliantly. Elizabeth never marries Robert Dudley. Cecil saves her throne, reign, and country. But the Queen also never married anyone else either. So Cecil failed to see the Queen produce a legitimate heir of her body. But his fears of her being overthrown in a time of great religious and political division by a people that would refuse to accept a King Dudley were quelled. So did Amy die falling down the stairs? No. Amy Dudley proved to be a pawn in a high-power political Game of Thrones. I believe that the most likely scenario is blunt force trauma to her head killed her and her neck broke when she was thrown down the stairs by the killer. Hence, there were no other bruises, not on her legs, of which there was a 44% chance she would have from a fall based on the research. But she had none because she was already dead tumbling down the stairs. There's no mention of blood in her autopsy because she did not die on those stairs. She was struck elsewhere and bled and someone cleaned it up. There is no way to detect the presence of blood once it was cleaned up in 1560. I believe that a political murder took place that September. And I think Cecil had a hand in it. I think Cecil had the motive and the opportunity to make many of his difficulties and problems vanish. And I think that William Cecil sent someone to that house, knowing it would be empty, knowing Amy would be alone. So based on the evidence, I think it was William Cecil. Now, royal murder doesn't stop with Amy Robsart. And it will cast another large shadow over Elizabeth's reign more than this mystery ever did. I refer to the death of Mary, Queen of Scots' husband, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. This is where I cast a wider net as second cast begins. As Elizabeth is dealing with the aftermath of Amy's demise, 1560-1561, Mary, Queen of Scots, returns to Scotland from France. So who is Mary and how does she fit into all of this? You might remember I mentioned her as the Queen Consort of France, who had made a snippy judgmental comment that her cousin, the Queen of England, was going to marry her horsemaster. Yeah, well, that's this Mary. Looking back at the Tudor family tree, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York's eldest daughter was Margaret, who married James IV of Scotland. Mary, Queen of Scots, is Margaret's granddaughter. Margaret's son, James V of Scotland, married Marie of Guise from a very powerful French noble family. Their daughter, Mary, was six days old when James V died, and she becomes Queen of Scotland. At age five, Mary was sent to France to be raised, and as a teenager in 1558, she married the Dauphin, and on his ascension to the throne as Francis II, she becomes Queen Consort of France. This is about the time that Elizabeth came to the throne in England. In 1560, same year Amy died, Francis II died when Mary was 18. A Catholic, a widowed queen, she would return to rule a Protestant Scotland, and everyone believed young Queen Mary needed a husband to help her rule and produce an heir 
much the same situation that Elizabeth faced. But Mary was obsessed with being named as Elizabeth's heir, and Elizabeth was having none of that. The cousin queens would tangle and debate with Elizabeth suggesting several choices for Mary's husband, which included Robert Dudley. That is one of the reasons he is finally elevated to the peerage as the Earl of Leicester. While Mary came to believe that she should marry an Englishman to make her of non-English royalty more palatable to the xenophobic English, and she should marry someone who would boost her claim to Elizabeth's throne. This turned out to be their cousin, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. Well, who is he? Okay, more family tree. So, Henry VIII's sister, Margaret. After James IV's death, she remarried to Archibald Douglas, the Scottish Earl of Angus. While she would greatly regret this union, they had an English-born daughter, Lady Margaret Douglas. Daughter Margaret would marry Scottish Lord Matthew Stuart, the Earl of Lennox, and they would have the son, Henry, Lord Darnley. So through Grandma Margaret Tudor, Darnley has a very good claim to the English throne. Tudor blood, he's English, male, descended from the elder sister, and he is Catholic, which appeals to Mary, Queen of Scots. So in 1565, Darnley, age 19, Mary, 22, meet with him sweeping the queen off her feet, and they marry shortly thereafter. The marriage of these two is a great example of the proverb, marry in haste, repent in leisure. Very quickly, the real Darnley is exposed. Rash, power-hungry, he wanted to be king, not consort, and for his wife to be subservient to him, which, to be fair, is the norm for this era. He is ill-tempered, immature, a drunk, promiscuous, likely had syphilis, was stupid, and a reprehensible narcissistic sot. I should really tell you what I think. Now, shocked, Mary refuses him the crown matrimonial, utterly disgusted, as he recklessly plots against her and is manipulated by varying factions of Scottish lords. In 1566, Darnley and some henchmen orchestrate the murder of Mary's loyal, trusted secretary, David Rizzo, in front of a very pregnant Mary, leaving her traumatized and horrified. She manages to swing Darnley back to her side, and Mary would give birth to their son, James, who is later King James VI. But then the turmoil begins in earnest. The situation would continue to deteriorate as three camps emerge. First, Darnley, working to push Mary aside and govern in his son's name. Two, Mary's advisors suggesting a divorce, desperately needed given Darnley's erratic and impulsive and dangerous behavior. And three, these same nobles separately hatching a plot to assassinate Darnley on the grounds that divorce took too long and could bastardize Prince James. And among these plotters, was one of Mary's closest and most trusted counselors, James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell. Mary, however, charted another course, a surprise reconciliation with her husband, unsettling everyone. She strove to find common ground, referring to their Catholic faith, their son, quelling rebellion about them, 
with just about all of the Scottish lords disenchanted with them both. They utterly hated Darnley. On February 10th, 1567, Mary was at Holyrood Palace, attending the wedding of her servant, Sebastian Page. In a jovial mood, she enjoyed the evening. She declined to go with her husband back to his establishment at Kirkafield, blaming his lingering illness, which could infect their baby son. Placating Darnley, she reminded him that they would be together in the morning and from then on. So this reconciliation, is it sincere? Is it for looks only? We don't know, but I think she is legit trying to find a way through this mess that she has created. In the wee hours of that morning, a huge explosion was heard at the King Consort's residence at Kirkafield, completely destroying the whole structure with nothing but ruins and foundation stones left. Darnley's partially clad body was found in a nearby orchard with his servant, neither of them having any wounds, burns, or abrasions. Unharmed by the blast, Darnley had been smothered, perhaps strangled. Clearly, those who set up this assassination were idiots. Had the Queen known this assassination plot was afoot, historians still debate. I think she did not, in spite of her not spending the night with Darnley. No mother, no queen risks her heir's health. That is just very real. A seemingly shocked Mary ordered an investigation offering a reward for anyone coming forth with information about the murderers. There survives a number of depositions and descriptions of what happened, which enables us to reconstruct the events of the night of the murder. So here we go. Waking in the dark, Darnley and his servant, William Taylor, realized that the house was surrounded by conspirators. Darnley and Taylor managed to maneuver themselves out a first-story window and through a door in the town wall and run smack into the killers. Pleading, begging for his life, Darnley and Taylor were murdered, and then the house was blown up, probably to cover up the murder. Okay, so try putting the body in the house before you blow it up. These people are not the sharpest tools in the shed. A number of possible suspects exist, and they were all either fast allies or entrenched enemies. This, of course, makes it really hard to get any kind of accurate statement about who did what and who knew what. What I wouldn't give for a fingerprint kit, but not yet. So there is little in terms of actual evidence. Who is the number one suspect? James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell, who is alleged to have supplied the gunpowder and motivation. So who is James Hepburn? Protestant Scottish Lord. The Earl of Bothwell first met Mary when she was in France. He was an avid supporter of her mother, Marie of Guise, who acted as regent in her daughter's absence. When Marie of Guise died, the Protestant Scottish lords regained power, with Bothwell supporting Catholic Queen Mary on her return to the country. So he's pretty much had Mary's back the whole time. But Bothwell is not a particularly good man. Could his participation in the assassination be proved? As the investigation rolls along, Queen Mary wrote to Darnley's father, Matthew Stewart, Earl of Lennox, promising, quote, a perfect trial to be had of the king, our husband's cruel slaughter, end quote. Lennox and his wife, 
Darnley's mother, Margaret Douglas, were outraged and demanded that their enemies be arrested. At the Senate House of Edinburgh, a hearing was held as Bothwell rode in magnificently dressed, followed by many Scottish noble supporters and the Hepburn clan, a definite show of power. A trial went on from noon until 7 p.m. at night, lasting for about a week. So this is really nobles largely investigating themselves. Locked away, hearing witness testimony, no actual evidence was produced. And on April 12th, they acquitted Bothwell. The entire continent of Europe groaned in response. Supposedly suffering ill health and under the advice of her physician, Mary traveled to Lord Seton's home, taking in the healing air. But who was also there helping the queen to recover from what may have been a nervous breakdown? Bothwell. This did not go unnoticed. A week after his acquittal on April 20th, 1567, Bothwell made his supporters sign a document called the Ancilly Tavern Bond. This pledge did two things. One, approved the Earl of Bothwell's acquittal for the murder of the king, and two, recommended Bothwell as an appropriate husband for Mary, Queen of Scots, and they pledged to assist in defending such a marriage. Now, why would people persist in thinking that Bothwell killed Darnley? I can't, I can't imagine. So the rumor mill we are so familiar with had kicked in, but now it explodes, pun intended. Stories swirled that Mary had taken James Hepburn as her lover, that they conspired together to rid her of her loathed husband so that they could marry. Does this ring a bell? It is a redo of the Amy Robsart gossip, only we know for a fact that Darnley is murdered. In a number of printed pamphlets, Mary is depicted as a prostitute, ensnaring Bothwell. The Earl of Lennox flips out with him and his other relatives agitated for vengeance, forming a group known as the Confederate Lords. Meanwhile, at Parliament, Queen Mary officially declared that Bothwell's trial was just and according to the law of the land. Well, Elizabeth, too, had accepted the ruling of the Assisi's court jury, too. And now this is where history gets a little fuzzy. On April 24th, after visiting her son, Mary was on the road from Linlithgow Palace near Edinburgh when Bothwell suddenly appeared with 800 men. He told the Queen that danger awaited for her in Edinburgh and insisted that she accompany him to his castle at Dunbar to be out of harm's way. She agreed to accompany him, arriving at Dunbar at midnight, when it dawned on her that she had likely not been in any danger and that Bothwell had abducted the Queen. According to Privy Council records, Mary later claimed that Bothwell ravished her that night at Dunbar. Yeah. Oof. This is a problem, and there's much debate on whether or not this is true. But there's another problem. Back in February 1566, 14 months earlier, Bothwell married the daughter of the Earl of Huntley, Lady Jean Gordon. So, the guy being suggested for the Queen's husband, Bothwell is married, just as Robert Dudley had been married to Amy. 
five days after the ravishing, on April 29, 1567, Bothwell filed for divorce in a Catholic court claiming consanguinity, that he and his wife were related and couldn't be legally married, although they had received dispensation, that is approval from the Pope, to wed. And Lady Jean Gordon filed for divorce in the Protestant court, charging her husband with adultery with her servant, Bessie Crawford, which Bothwell admitted to. The Bothwell Protestant divorce became official first on May 3rd. The Catholic divorce, at Queen Mary's request, was finalized on May 7th. Shenanigans all of this. On May 12th, Mary pardoned Bothwell for kidnapping her and made him Duke of Orkney and Lord of Shetland. Eight days later, Mary Queen of Scots married Bothwell in a Protestant ceremony in the Great Hall of Holyrood that was very sparsely attended. She wore black as she was still in mourning for Darnley and appears to be completely tone deaf to what is going on around her. I mean, what could go wrong? I opened this episode with Elizabeth's letter to her cousin on Darnley's murder, imploring her cousin, remember, quote, Men say that instead of seizing the murderers, you are looking through your fingers while they escape, that you will not seek revenge on those who have done you so much. I counsel, I beg you deeply to consider the matter. If it be the nearest friend you have, to lay hands upon the man who is guilty of the crime, to let no interest, no persuasion, keep you from proving to everyone that you are a noble princess and loyal wife. End quote. Oh boy, did Mary take the good, solid advice given by Elizabeth, who had weathered a similar scandal during the Amy Robsart death inquiry? No, she does not. How had Elizabeth handled the inquiry into Amy's death? She exiled Robert from court. She publicly canceled his elevation to Earl of Leicester. She kept her hands off the investigation assuring everyone it would be robust and thorough. And after the inquiry ruled it was an accident, she still did not marry Dudley, even as Mary, Queen of Scots, chided her from France. Mary observed how Elizabeth, a fellow prince, conducted herself and kept her throne, even with malicious rumors flying. She learned nothing. Within three days, Sir William Drury wrote to London about Mary's abduction and marriage. Quote, Although the manner of things appear to be forced, it is known to be otherwise. End quote. So whatever Mary is selling, no one is buying. Many believe that Mary is in cahoots with Bothwell, and the results were dire. France, including her former in-laws and her Guise relatives, turned on Mary. Worse. England and the Pope turn their backs on her as well. Good Lord, Mary manages to get the Pope and England on the same page. That is some feat on her part. There is some supreme idiocy at work here. Well, guess what? Led by Matthew Stewart, Darnley's dad, the Confederate Scottish lords did not approve this marriage. How out of touch to think that they would. Protestants and Catholics are both scandalized that the Queen married Bothwell, still the number one suspect in Darnley's murder. 
An army was raised against the queen and her new husband, with Mary imprisoned in Loch Leven Castle. July 20th to 23rd, 1567, Mary miscarried twins, fathered by Bothwell. Some say this was Mary's reason for marrying Bothwell. A pregnant out-of-wedlock queen could not be. Now, modern medicine gives us some insights. Historian Alison Weir writes, quote, If Mary's estimate is followed, she was eight weeks pregnant at the most when she miscarried. However, two fetuses could not have been identified at eight weeks pregnant. At nine to ten weeks, a fetus is only one inch long. However, if the babies had been conceived at Dunbar, then the pregnancy would have lasted 12 weeks and they would have been easily identifiable for a fetus then is 3.5 inches long, end quote. This tells me that Mary tried to make it appear that she had conceived within her marriage and not out of wedlock. But when did 16th century women know they were pregnant? At about four months when they felt the child move, known as quickening, Dunbar to Mary's miscarriage is April 24th to, say, July 20th. That's three months pregnant, not four. She may have suspected because I think she and Bothwell were lovers. She may have waited to take him to her bed until Darling was dead, seeing no reason for restraint. But she'd have had sex with a married man as well. Did Bothwell ravish Mary at Dunbar? He probably did. After February 10th, the day Darnley was strangled, I think she and Bothwell were involved, and that puts her pregnancy at a four-month's duration. With twins, she may have felt bodily changes faster, and that can help explain Mary's choices. Weak, recovering, the Scottish Lord struck, seizing the Queen. July 24th, she was forced to abdicate her year-old son James, becoming James VI of Scotland. The regent, Mary's illegitimate half-brother, James Stuart, Earl of Moray. Ten months later, Mary would escape from her imprisonment, and she fled to England, because cousin Elizabeth would surely help her regain her throne, right? Hard stop wrong. Catholic Mary's presence in England could only bode poorly for Protestant Elizabeth, who was already dancing on a tightrope between her Catholic and Protestant subjects. Mary was placed in protective custody at varying locations for the next 20 years or so, until her plotting to kill Elizabeth and take her throne resulted in her execution in 1587. I condensed a whole lot there. All right, two more events noted during Mary, Queen of Scots, imprisonment in England. Thomas Howard, our fourth Duke of Norfolk, who was sent to the Tower for conducting marriage negotiations with the Queen of Scots without informing Elizabeth, and is a suspect in Amy Dudley's murder. He, Norfolk, blows his second chance at life and liberty. He involves himself in the Rudolphi plot. Uncovered by Francis Walsingham, Rudolphi is an Italian baker, ardent Catholic, and courier. He ran messages between King Philip II of Spain, Pope Pius V, Mary Queen of Scots, and Norfolk. The Rodolphi plot conspired to assassinate Elizabeth and restore Catholicism to England by putting Mary Queen of Scots on the English throne with her new husband, 
Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, an ardent Catholic, 10,000 Spanish troops would invade England, and the English Catholic nobility would join in. The plot was blown open by Elizabeth's extraordinary spy network, and in 1572, Thomas Howard was arrested and this time executed for treason. Okay, this is just dumb. And this is why I say Norfolk hadn't the mental bandwidth to plot devious murders. Another plot was uncovered by Cecil and Walsingham, known as the Babington Plot. A trial convicted Mary, Queen of Scots, of treason in seeking the death of Elizabeth and usurping her throne. And after deep, agonized debate with herself, Elizabeth signed the death warrant of Mary, Queen of Scots, and she was beheaded on February 8, 1584, at 44 years old. This was the death certificate that Cecil had to maneuver to get Elizabeth to sign, and then went to the Privy Council to have it enacted with Elizabeth flipping out. Grisly fact, it took three blows to sever Mary, Queen of Scots' head. And my learned opinion is that Mary, Queen of Scots, was an utter failure as a queen, a true disaster, and hardly a Catholic martyr. What about Bothwell? So he flees to Denmark, being arrested for having no papers. Held in Dragsholm Castle in Norway, about 50 miles or 75 kilometers outside Copenhagen, he was a royal pain <laughs> for Frederick II the Danish king. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Elizabeth called for him to be extradited and executed for Darnley's murder, while Francis Charles IX wanted Bothwell released. On top of all of this, Bothwell was then sued for abandonment by his first wife, Anna Thronson, who was a Norwegian noblewoman with an influential family. Anna Thronson and Bothwell were hand-fastened which was considered a legally binding agreement not long before Bothwell married Lady Jean Gordon. Again, this is all true. Now, going insane, Bothwell died in a terrible dank dungeon on April 14, 1578, leaving Mary, Queen of Scots, a widow again, which is why she was free to marry the Duke of Norfolk, which went so poorly. All right, so facts we know. Darnley died by smothering or strangulation. We still can't confirm exactly who killed him, although we have a pretty good idea of who the likely conspirators were and their motivation. Bothwell married the Queen. The murder resulted in the reign of Mary, Queen of Scots, devolving into a sordid, scandal-driven, dysfunctional mess. Her Protestant son, James VI, would eventually come into his majority and did not strive to free his mother either, because Scotland was all the better with Mary, Queen of Scots, being held in protective custody by Elizabeth I. He did not rock the royal yacht. Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, Gloriana, reigned for 44 years and is still considered to be the most successful monarch in English history. On Elizabeth's death in 1603, her cousin, James VI, would secede her as James I, joining England and Scotland under the Stuart dynasty. I know this series had a lot of crazy, dysfunctional, royal family shenanigans that leaves Diana 
Charles, Camilla, and Megan and Harry looking boring. Thank you for indulging me in my Tudor murder mystery deep dive. I hope you get a sense of the history and how human nature is shockingly consistent across the centuries. The death of Amy Robsart and Henry Stewart, Lord Darnley, King Consort of Scotland, have a lot in common. The suspicion, the intrigue, sketchy nobles positioned all about their royal epicenters. Toss in monarchy, dynasty, international relations, sex scandals, it becomes all the more poignant. And my next book is Dismembered by Susan D. Mustafa and Sue Israel. Thank you, Patreon subscribers, for helping me to pick this one. You did great. I had never heard of serial killer Sean Vincent Gillis, so this really intrigued me. Over a decade in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, women were hunted down, bludgeoned, strangled, then mutilated. When investigators finally caught mild-mannered Star Trek fan Sean Vincent Gillis, he couldn't wait to tell them every detail of his killing and what he did with the bodies which shocked the seasoned veteran detectives. All right, murder bookies, I need you to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. It's important in finding new murder bookies, and I am so appreciative of the time and attention you give me. I see you as you hear me. Join me on Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash Club for our Zooms. My merch shop on Spreadshop is open. Link is on my blog. Look for my tweets and Facebook and Instagram posts about sales and discounts. Shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. Trust your guts, murder bookies. Source material, snack, drink, information, portraits, family trees, diagrams for the death of Amy Robsart and Elizabethan mystery trilogy are found on my blog too. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena and lyrics by Otto Harbuck. <laughs>